we've been going through this as a simple Christmas, and you know, we talked about you know, who Jesus is, and we talked about him being the Son of God, and we talked about him being the Savior. And, and with Savior, there's, we get some sense of the answer to this question, what did he come to do? But we're going to spend some time on those questions. You know, what did Jesus come to do? Why was, why was he sent? Before we get there, I, I wanted to give you some lines from another scene from uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. And, and in this case, Sally, who's Charlie Brown's little sister, is, uh, is asking Charlie, her brother, to write down her letter to Santa Claus. Um, anybody ever write the letter to Santa Claus when you were a kid? Yeah, some of you? Yeah. Um, I, I think every year I asked for a football. Um, that was me. But she's writing here, and Charlie Brown is, I mean, she's speaking, and Charlie Brown's writing on. She says, she says, she tells Charlie to write this. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? I've been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. And, of course, Charlie, who's having this existential crisis of, you know, what is... You know, what is Christmas all about? And he can't seem to come to grips with it. You know, he says, oh, brother. And then Sally continues. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? And then, of course, Charlie is exasperated. Tens and twenties. Oh, even my baby sister. And Sally then says to Charlie, All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. It's just amazing that this really simple cartoon from the 1960s, captured in just such simple but very powerful ways, so much of people's attitudes towards God and towards Christianity. Oh, Sally's more blunt about it, but make no mistake, there are a lot of people, a lot of even Christians, who have a similar relationship to God that Sally has with Santa Claus. You know, she starts her letter, you know, kind of being relational. How's your summer? How's your wife? But that's not really what she cares about. That's not really the foundation of her relationship to Santa Claus. None of, none of that at all. Now, if you were this kid, you could have done it for two different reasons. I was not this kid. But how many of you wrote letters to Santa Claus throughout the year? None of us, right? Again, you might have had that one kid who was either really wanting to develop a relationship with Santa Claus or thought, if I do that, more likely I'll get what I want, right? So it was one of the two reasons. But most of us never thought about that. Even, you know, though we, you know, many of us believe, you know, that Santa Claus was, was working hard on stuff. Um, We don't want this relationship to be any more than just giving me what I deserve, giving me my fair share. 
And again, it's how a lot of people are with God. You know, they, you know, they, they pay God like the customary things. You know, they'll be like, you know, they'll, they'll come to church, you know, at least once a week, maybe. Some of them might even spend a good five, ten minutes a day praying and, you know, maybe spending a little time in God's Word. But it's not really a, I really want to get to know you, God. I really want to understand, you know, who you are. It's more like we're going to be on good terms. That's the most important thing is that I'm on good terms with God. Not that I know him and not that I have a relationship. And so when do we really open ourselves up to God? When do we really want to like, engage on a deeper level? Well, it's usually when we want something or need something. It's usually maybe when we're going through a hard time where we've you know, lost someone we love or you know, we're worried about the future. And then it's like, oh God, you know, and then we, we want to, you know, we, we call out to him. But we don't really want God to know us. And we don't really want to know God. You see, you know, Santa Claus based everything on the naughty and nice list. But you know, he never actually put out a book that told us what was naughty and what was nice. So you're kind of left to guess, or your parents interpreted that for Santa, right? And all, if, if there had been a list put out, then that's all that we would care about, you know, keeping the list. We wouldn't think about Santa. And that's how a lot of Christians are, too. It's like, I don't really want to relate to God. God, just tell me the things you want me to do and not do, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But I don't really want any more than that. Because how is Santa going to know the condition of your heart? All he cares about is your actions. What God cares about is who you are, not simply what you do. And if we're going to have a real relationship, we have to be willing to say, God, look at everything. Search my heart. Work everywhere. Reveal to me the things that are not like Jesus. And help me become more like Jesus. I mean, I ask sometimes the question, when's the last time you knew there was some significant spiritual growth in your life. But let me ask you this. When is the last time you asked for it? When is the last time you said, Jesus, where, what is it? What am I holding on to? Why can't I be more like you? What is that darkness in my heart? What is that bitterness I'm holding on to? What is that grudge? What is that pride? What is that comfort? I've become so comfortable in my life and I've got you fitting into it perfectly in my comfortable life. Have I made comfort an idol? What is it? 
When's the last time we asked that question? When's the last time we said, God, whatever it takes, even if you need to scare me, even if you need to put me in situations that are weird and awkward and dangerous, do it if it will make me more like Jesus. Do it if I will get to know you more and, and you can help me know who I am more. When's the last time? It's part of the problem of being in the first world. Now, I'm going to just tell you, I am glad I was born in the first world. I am glad that, you know, we're not a third world or fourth world nation. I'm not going to lie to you. But here's the danger. We think security and comfort and personal happiness are the highest ends of life. And we're never confronted over whether that's actually become, those things have become idols in our lives because they're never threatened to be taken away. That's one of the reasons when we, when we see Christians in third and fourth world nations, we often see an, an authenticity to their faith that, that we don't see around. We see them living joyful, faithful lives in situations that we think would crush us. I remember when we took our, one of our first groups to Haiti, and, you know, we were up in this kind of mountain village in Haiti, and we spent a week there. And I remember about three or four days into the trip, um, you, know, we were, you know, we would have like, our, like a dinner and then a debriefing. And so I asked them, you know, share their impressions and everything. And one of the students said, you know what I didn't expect? I didn't expect that these people would be so happy. They seem happier than we are. And these are people who have, who have nothing, but they're not sitting around complaining about it. And he knew back on campus in Texas, everybody complained all the time about everything. You complained about, you know, the, the food in the cafeteria. You complained about, you know, your dorm was too cold or too hot. You complained about, you know, the, you know, the fact that, you know, you didn't, you know, you couldn't get around. Or you complained about the weather. You complained about your professors. It's always constant complaints. And then they saw these Christians who, I mean, from our standards, really had nothing and there was a happiness and a joy. He, he said, you know, I expected it to be like those TV commercials, you know, the ones with Sally Field with the kids walking around and they have the distended stomachs and the flies and they're always crying. And what did he see? He saw children acting like children, playing and laughing and doing all kinds of things. When's the last time? Do we really want a relationship with God? Or do we want to just let him be close enough that we know he's there should we have a problem? But he's not so close that he actually is looking into our lives. Well, let me just tell you, 
what I'm about today say today is going to just ruin that if that if you know that that's your idea of what Christianity is. Because I think a lot of people have you know decided both in the church and outside the church they either don't believe in God at all they've become you know atheist or or you know what agnostic or they believe in a God who they do not want to have a healthy relationship with. Oh, they believe in God, but they don't want to have a relationship with God. They just want him to be there when they get in trouble. And so we come here to the passage that we're going to look at today, and it's coming from Paul's letter to the Romans. And here, Paul's explaining to this church at Rome just a little bit of background. Paul, Paul had never been to Rome. He wants to go to Rome, and he's eventually going to end up there. But he's explaining to this church, and he knows some people in the church that he's met on his journeys, but he really doesn't know most of the people. And so this is an opportunity for him to kind of explain to them, you know, as fully as possible, you know, what he believes God's plan has been, the plan of salvation, the centrality of faith and grace. And so, you know, he he's, takes the time to do that. And, and, and he starts this, this letter, you know, after the kind of niceties of the first few verses, he just kind of just jumps into this most depressing part of the Bible. It starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and it talks about how, how as, as human beings, you know, and he, that we've just kind of rejected God. And in fact, we've not just rejected God, we've tried to replace Him. And it's to add insult upon insult, we try to replace God with things that God made. And it's kind of like if, if I'd hope you didn't ever have this problem, that if your spouse is so mad at you, that they want to replace you, and they don't want to replace you with a human being, right? This is, this is how, you know, they, they feel a, you know, a relationship with a potato is better than a relationship with you. And that's kind of how, you know, Paul points out that we treat God. And then it talks about God's wrath, and God's wrath is, is not that he, you know, throws, you know, lightning bolts at us or, or strikes us dead. His wrath in Romans is he lets us go. He lets us go. And so we get deeper and deeper into our, our depraved minds, which means basically a mind that, that is rejecting God, therefore trying to, to fill those things in and trying to understand things and, and figure out how we should relate to, to one another and, and you know, live together as human beings, that we move farther and farther away from that. It shows up in, in, in specifically, talks about even our, our sexual relationships. It's this breakdown. God lets us go. And then he goes on because he wants to make sure the, the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians that are reading this aren't going, yeah, that's how those Gentiles are. 
But he goes on in chapters 2 and 3 to say, no one has an excuse. Everyone knows. No one has an excuse. And then he adds to that, no one is righteous. If, if his letter ended there, it would be the most, again, depressing letter ever. Because not only have we rejected God, not only have we, have we developed gods in, 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 of our making, he's saying no one is righteous. We've all sinned. And then he says the wages of sin is death. But thank God, Paul doesn't stop there. He then goes faith. And specifically, he talks about the importance of faith in Jesus Christ. And so we pick that up in chapter 5. And we're just going to look at the first 11 verses here. But in chapter 5, verse, you know, verses 1 through 11, after he's given this most depressing picture of our condition, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's just pouring out the good news. This is what Christ accomplished. This is what will happen if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to necessarily work progressively through this passage. going to jump around a little bit here and there. But the first thing that we see is that what Jesus came to do is to give us peace with God. He came, came to give us peace with God. He came to make it so that we are no longer enemies of God. Let me make sure you understand up front, God was never our enemy. God was never our enemy. But we were his enemy. 
what Jesus comes to do is he comes to give us peace with God. We don't like that word enemy. You know, we, we like to, you know, think about, you know, our relationship with God is, you know, being a little different. You know, we understand we made mistakes and things like that. But we don't like enemies. In fact, we don't like the way this passage describes us before Christ. If you look in verse 6, it says we're weak. It says we're ungodly. What is that telling us? It's telling us what Paul has talked about in other places. We're slaves. We're powerless. We don't like that. We like to think like, you know, we have control. We're, we're masters of our fate. And then in verse 8, it says, you're sinners. Saying that you are willfully disobeying. It's not a, it's, there's this sense where you're slave to sin, where you can't help it. But the Bible also talks about you being sinner, which means you can help it. You are willfully disobeying. And then finally, he talks about being, calls us in uh, verse 10, you are enemies. You are enemies of God. You are in active, open rebellion against God. You see, when we, when we think about it that way, we understand that sin is not simply, you know, I, God had some rules and I didn't follow the rules. No, we see that sin is a personal rejection of a personal God. It is when you are an enemy, when Paul's writing about enemy, he's saying you believe, even though it's not true, that you are a rival power. For all of you University of Hawaii football fans, here's the, here, here's, here's the example that I think, you know, helps us understand. In the 70s and 80s, who did we think was our arch rival? Like, you could lose every game, but if you beat this team, it was a good year. Anybody remember? Yes, it's spelled B-Y-U. One of the most revealing things came along a few, about a year or two before Hawaii, you know, got, you know, better. But it's when the BYU coach and the BYU team didn't think Hawaii was a rival. And you know why? Because we had never beaten them. And most of the time, it wasn't even close. But we thought, you know, oh, Aloha Stadium, 50,000 people if BYU was playing. People would, you know, you, you'd schedule your weekend if it was an away game. But BYU is like, what? Hawaii thinks we're their rival? Huh. Interesting. Kind of made you feel kind of small. But that's even more so, not even, 
you know, close to the comparison between the University of Hawaii and BYU is between us and God. Because being enemies of God, think, make, it's this idea that you're his rival. That you can take his place on the throne. That you know better than he knows. That you, you know, you can, you know, you have a better plan. And you're going to take control. You're rejecting God. You are saying about God, God, you're either not as powerful as you think you are, or God, you're not as smart as you think you are, or God, you're not as good as you think you are, or maybe you're just not as loving as you think you are. Because if you were, you would do things my way rather than the way you're saying. It's not a pretty picture. Slaves, weak, helpless, disobedient, viewing ourselves as enemies of God. But Jesus came so that we might have peace with God. And you see, if God wasn't our rival, and if God was the one trying to make the way so that we could reconcile with him, he's not the one that needs to be changed. We are. And so if we're going to have peace with God, something has to happen to us. Something has to change. We have to be different. We have to be people that no longer have this, this view that we can rival God and that we know better than God. We have to have people that, are, that don't have this, this, this feeling that we're just, we're just slaves to, you know, whatever, our sin of the, you know, our impulses, our desires. We, in fact, have to become those who will not just obey, but have the heart and the mind in that, that, that wants to obey. He says, when that happens, you're no longer objects of God's wrath. Remember, Paul's mind is, in what Paul's written in, in Romans 1 is, God's wrath is expressed in that he lets us go our way. He lets us go deeper and deeper and deeper into our sin. When we're no longer objects of his wrath, he draws us close. He doesn't just let us go. He pulls us close. Notice he's, he's, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that, not because he doesn't love you, but he's not going to do that if, if against your will. He's not going to force you to come and, you know, have, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have peace together no matter what you think, you know. It's like, you know, your dad saying, we're going to have a Merry Christmas no matter what, right? I mean, it doesn't work to order people to have a happy, you know, merry, loving time. Something about us changes, 
And it changes not because we've changed, because we've decided, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to have a different attitude. I'm going to try harder. No, it's because when we have faith in Jesus Christ, He changes us. As Wayne read this morning, we become a new creation. Old things have passed away. He draws us close. And as he does, we have this relationship with him, and it's a relationship that continues to transform us. I, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because there's so many like, things in here that are, that are worth bringing out, but you know, I wanted to, to just look at verse 5. Because this tells us, it's, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, part of what Jesus does, part of what he does is, is, he, is he comes so that we might know God's love. You see, all of this stuff that happens up above in verse 3, it's linked to that statement about God pouring love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's linked with the word because. And he's saying, you know why suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope? Do you know why? Because honestly, suffering doesn't always do that. In fact, suffering often goes in the opposite direction. Incessant suffering, relentless suffering, eventually breaks us. It eventually makes us bitter. It eventually makes us, you know, retreat into some kind of shock where we don't, you know, we don't feel anymore. But he's saying, no, it produces hope. How can relentless suffering, how can incessant suffering produce hope? Oh, he, he says it's because this endurance that we get from suffering produces character. So how is that attached to love? You see, if, if God has poured out love into our lives, as we're going through that process of growing that, that oftentimes comes from suffering, we know because of God's love in our lives, that, that, that it is character being produced because it's going to be like that love. It is a strengthening of the love that, that's being poured out upon us. Strengthening not in the way that it needs to be strengthened, but strengthened in our, our experience of it, in our ability to express it. That we know that when the, when the Bible talks about love as being, you know, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, humility. That when we see that kind of character being produced in us through suffering, then we know that, that what we're learning from that experience is meeting that love that's been poured out upon us. And it gives us hope. 
It gives us hope because we know Jesus did what he said he would do. That when we had faith in Jesus Christ, he would make us new. If suffering just makes you more and more and more bitter, more and more and more selfish, how, how, can, you, how can you have any hope that Jesus did anything for you? But when it, when it moves our character more and more towards this character of God's perfect love, ah, oh, there's hope. When the things that, that come into this world would, would lead everybody else to go this way, and for those of us who have been changed by Jesus Christ, it leads us in the opposite direction. Ah, there's hope. You, you, you want to know? You want to know the, the evidence that we don't necessarily want to ever have to have, but I'll tell you, it's the clinching evidence for you that, that Jesus did what he said he would do, is when you have to confront an enemy you have to confront an enemy who is actively persecuting you, actively hurting you. And God's undeniable love is overwhelming you. And all you can feel for that enemy is love. That's what he came to do. That's the evidence we might know this love it's been poured out upon us but we also might show this love we might experience this love we might express it and express it in the situations where everything about us other than Christ wants to do the opposite where at best we just want to ignore them at best, we just kind of want to separate and kind of go our separate ways. But we know God's love in our lives is saying, love them. It's, it's, it's the evidence. It's the evidence for me. I, I, I know what I want to do with my enemies. And I think you know what you want to do with yours. But it says, love them. And love them is not simply like, oh, yeah, 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 I love them. It's not talking to your enemy on the phone, and then when, you know, you say goodbye, I love you, hang up. No. In other places, Paul says, bless them. Bless them. want the best for them. Well, I said we'd be jumping around, and I want to jump back up to this, to verse 1 again. Because Paul's talking about something that he had talked about in the previous chapter, and he just kind of summarizes it here to kind of connect the thoughts. But he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What Jesus came to do is 
is give us peace with God, but for that peace to happen, we have to be justified by faith. This is why peace is possible. And what does this mean, this justification? Well, as Paul had written in previous chapters, and he's going to, he's going to kind of come back to it a little bit in chapter 6, he talks about how the, the wages of sin is death. And when he talks about death, he's talking about death in, in different ways. He's, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about separation from, from God, that we cannot have peace with God. We cannot have fellowship with God. As long as we are, you know, under the penalty of sin, can, we cannot. And it's, and it's not because God is, you know, like giving us the silent treatment. You know, it's not like God is, is you know, you're saying, God, God, and he's pretending not to hear you. No, it's not why. Because it's because you don't want to. Oh, you may want to relate to God the way Sally wants to relate to Santa Claus. You may want to relate to God as long as you can kind of make him a tame God. You may want to relate to God if you get to shape him and form him into whatever you think God should be. But you don't really want to relate to the God we find revealed in the Bible. There's a separation. There's a penalty. But what we have to see is that, is that if God and, and what he's saying is right, then it's, it's what we need to do. But if, if there's no penalty, then God is like, you know, it's one of the rules I learned. I'm glad I learned it because I sometimes can be given to hyperbole. Um, but I learned really early before I had kids that you should never threaten your kids with punishment that you're not willing to deliver. So you should never say like, you know, things like, if you do that again, you will never, right? If you're not willing to deliver, don't do that because what happens? Well, the kids figure it out. Mom, mom and dad's words, they're they're at best suggestions. Maybe not even that. You know, they, they stop taking you at your word. And so it was always like the challenge, especially when, you know, daughter has really upset you, that it's always was a challenge for me to whatever I decided would be their punishment was something that was I would be willing to follow through on. So selling them to the highest bidder, I never used that as a, as a, you know. I used to, I will admit, um, I used to walk through the stores with Keiko when she was five, and I would say things like, five-year-old for sale for five dollars, and I would say it, and then she would cover my mouth, which was good because she didn't want to be sold. But it was never... It was, it was hopefully a joke that she understood. Maybe not. Maybe that's why she needs therapy. But um, 
But you know, the, the whole idea is that you, you never promise more. You never make something like it's the worst thing in the world because it's not so much that you didn't follow through with the punishment. It's that they don't really believe that you think that what they did was all that wrong. And so if, if the Bible, throughout the Bible, has says the wages of sin is death. And then God just goes, ah, you know what, guys? We all make mistakes, so it's okay. We just, we just pretend none of that happened. Why would we take God at his word for anything else he says? We should be able to go back and reinterpret everything. His words really aren't that important. If he's not going to take his own words important, how important are they? Well, thankfully, he does take his words important. He takes them so important that he sends Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. To once and for all let us know, I mean what I said. What I'm, what I'm telling you, it's truth. And I mean it. And if you go against this truth, it's not me punishing you. I'm telling you, if you go against this truth, you are going to your own destruction. I mean it. And if we know that he means it, then we can take him at his word. You see, through Jesus Christ, forgiveness now is possible. It's possible without lessening the importance of God's word. It's not a compromise. It's not God going, well, you know, let's negotiate this. No. His word is still his word. His law is still his, is still his law. That's what absolute truth means. That's what absolute morality means. It means once and for all, absolute. If you believe that you know absolute truth, if you believe that you have gained absolute truth, knowledge from, from the Bible, you cannot compromise with society. There are a lot of things in this world that we can compromise. But you cannot compromise those things that you believe are absolute. Because as soon as you do, you are admitting it is not absolute. God doesn't compromise. But he also doesn't just leave us on our own. He makes a way through Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be justified? If we have faith in Jesus Christ and it says that we're justified, it's that God no longer sees us or treats us as though we're sinners, even though we still sin. Instead, he sees us and he treats us like Jesus. It's the great news. It's the great news of the Bible that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God. We can be justified before God. And even though we're not 
yet experiencing the finished work of who we're going to become, God treats us that way anyways. He treats us that way anyways. One of the things over my many years of you know, being with, with Cheryl and doing music together is, is I, I like the fact that my wife sometimes treats me like I actually understand music. It's nice. Even though I don't really, you know, she'll be talking to me and using like musical terms that I didn't know existed. And, you know, I just nod, you know. But it's nice to be treated that way. And if I were like a student of music over time and being treated that way, as I grew in my knowledge of music, the way she, she would talk to me and treat to me, would treat me would kind of come together. I think that's sometimes what it's like to, to be a Christian. God treats us for who we're becoming as though we've already become it. And that gives us hope and it gives us confidence as we're going on that path of becoming like that. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And finally, just to kind of wrap this up here, he says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus came so that we would have a healthy, fulfilling relationship with God. Remember, when I, when I define reconciliation for you, reconciliation is not simply two people saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then going on. Reconciliation, the way the Bible presents reconciliation, is that when reconciliation occurs, the, the relationship is stronger and better than it has ever been. It's one of the reasons... In a weird way, sometimes when we have problems with each other, there are actually opportunities for us to grow stronger. It's, it's one of these things that, you know, we see sometimes in like, um, if you work out, like if you, if you like lift weights and things like that, that what happens is, as you're lifting weights, you're kind of traumatizing your muscles. And the muscle fibers are like kind of separating. But as they heal, they become stronger. And if you never push them to the point that they separate, they'll never get stronger. And I think sometimes in, 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 I would love for us never to have any need for reconciliation. But I know that's not true. And so we shouldn't see these, these times that we need reconciliation as something to be avoided when they're necessary but they're opportunities to make us stronger. And so reconciliation with God wasn't simply, oh, let's just reset everything like we're back in the garden. Or let's just make it a clean slate and go from there. No. We will have a better relationship with God. And the relationship is better because we have been made better through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.